Not yet? Can you hear me now? All right. Well, good morning. I can't shout that loud, so I'm glad it's on. Uh, It's an honor to be on this side. I usually sit where you are, and the lights are a little brighter up here. Uh, Our topic today is not Jonah. I know some of you are disappointed you like Jonah, but it's about work. And, of course, that's appropriate because tomorrow is what? It's Labor Day. Actually, it's the 125th celebration of Labor Day. And I'm going to define work real broadly this morning. So there's paid labor. We think of that as work. But also unpaid labor as being work. So if you raise kids, that's work. If you volunteer, with a lot of boomers in the room, we volunteer. Uh, If you're a caregiver, my goodness, that's work. And even those of you going to school We'll count that as work. So a very broad definition. Whatever you use, when I, so when I use the word work this morning, think in your context how it applies to you. I'm going to take a, a brief informal survey and going to give you three choices. So how many of you, don't raise your hands yet, how many of you love your work? You just can't, you're so excited, can't wait to get there. The second group will be, it's a mixed bag. There are good days, there are bad days, there are good hours, bad hours. And the third group is work is kind of hard. It's just kind of dragged. Okay, so here we go. How many of you in the first group, you love your work? Pretty good number. How many of you, it's a mixed bag? Majority. And how many of you, it's kind of a bummer right now? Yeah, I think, I think that bummer category is probably larger than you just, you know, there's no video cameras today. <laughs> but what surveys show is there's kind of a bell-shaped curve here. Only 20% of Americans would fit themselves into Category 1. So actually, you're a happier group. I think we have a lot of retirees who are happy with what they're doing, to be honest with you. Um, And most people fit in category number two. So the outline, just so you know where we're going this morning, has three parts. The first is the light side of work. And that is, what is great about work? What gets us up in the morning? What excites us? What What is just good about it? And then, of course, the second part is the dark side of work. And that's self explaining, isn't it? What is about work that just gets us down, that grinds us, that is disappointing and frustrating? And then the third part of the talk, we'll try to re- talk about redeeming work. So how do we, how do we move out of category three into two? Uh, how do we move maybe from two to one? But how do we look at work and see how God can redeem that in our lives? So let's start with the light side of work, and we're going to start in Genesis. It, it's fascinating for me. I was rereading Genesis this week. The first two chapters of Scripture are full of the word work. I mean, literally, the word work. So let's look at Genesis 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because of it. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's three works in two verses. And then later on in chapter 2, the same word, the same Hebrew word is applied to humans. The Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So again, it's interesting that the Hebrew word is the same for the references to God and to humans. That's significant. And if you remember back in Genesis 1, God looks like a master craftsman. He looks at the building he's making, and as the floor comes on, he says, that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and the roof comes on, and that's good. And at the very end, what does God say? It's very good. It's very good. And so... If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Work is not a necessary evil. It is not a punishment. Matter of fact, it's part of God's idea, and we imitate God. It's his gift to us when we work. And what I find interesting in the first two chapters of Genesis is that it's an integral part of paradise. Think of that. Work is an integral part of paradise. And And I was thinking, is there going to be work in heaven 
well, I for one don't want to sit on a cloud with a harp and just sort of float around. So I'm thinking, even though there's not much said about what heaven's going to be like in that sense, I think if God created Eden this way for humans to work, that heaven's going to be full of very interesting activities and good things for us to do. Amen? I mean, I just, I just don't want to be bored in heaven. Um, and I don't think that's what it's going to be. I think it's going to be anything but boring. And when Jesus came to earth, and of course we know he worked as a carpenter, but look at, he, in, in one of his debates he has with the religious leader, uh, he quotes Genesis 2, and this is what he says, My father is always at his work. I too am working. So he appropriates the Genesis 2 language and puts it in the New Testament. Tim Keller, in a great book, um, has this quote. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. So you go home and somebody says, what did you hear today at church? Well, I heard that work was as important as sex and food. Okay. Um, That's Tim Keller, and actually, by quoting him, I agree. Without meaningful work, he goes on, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. We need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually, and I might add socially. And I love this last line, we are designed to work. It is in our DNA. Now, about 10 years ago, there was a Pixar film called WALL-E. How many of you saw WALL-E? Yeah, it's a really very clever film, and it's set in the 29th century, way in the future. And as you can see from the screen, which hopefully will come up here, Human beings uh, live in these spaceships that are off of Earth, and robots provide everything they need. So if you're floating around on these little chairs, you drop your drink, the robot will come and pick it and give it back to you. And there's artificial intelligence, and you're entertained, and they're shopping. The trick of the movie is what looks like a utopia. You think, oh, no work, this is fabulous. It's really a dystopia. Because what happens to us when we don't have work? We become lazy, we become complacent, we become introspective, we become dependent, and we become incompetent. So let's go back to Genesis 1 as contrast distinction to this movie. God's command, his mandate to Adam and Eve, God blessed them. And look at what it says, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible. These are action verbs, these are directives. So we are meant to be active, busy people creating things. And what I find interesting is that in Genesis, not only are we to imitate God by bringing order out of chaos in our work, but I think there's an implication that's a little more profound. And that is, the the implication is that God made the Garden of Eden incomplete. It was perfect, but it was not static. And what he gave to the humans was the ability to extend creation. So when we work, we are extending creation. Isn't that a nice image? God didn't finish the job. He, let, he lets us do that. So I'm going to show you a photo here of when I... Uh, it's an SPU group of students. And this is, I just pulled this off the web. I don't know any of these students. They're, they're studying in China. And uh, why do I show you this film? Because this picture is because as I think about the light side of work, I think about 19 years ago, Professor Doug Downing and I worked for a year to create this program. And since, as Dean, and since that time, hundreds of SPU students have gone to China and other countries. I don't say that to boast, but I, I wanted to give you an illustration. When I look back on my 40-year career, this is one of the joys. And, and I don't even know these, these kids, these young adults, but it's such a blessing. You know, I hope you know what I mean here. So I want you to think of a Think of something that you've created at work. 
If you're an office manager, you created a new system. That is extending creation. If you're a graphic designer, I'm so jealous of you graphic designers because you're creating all the time. If you're a teacher and you've written some new curriculum, if you're in finance and you figured out we could save some money over here by doing it this way, and then the money moves over to something more mission critical, that is creating. Another light side of, of work is that when you've invested in someone at work, you've mentored them, you've promoted them, and they flourish. Isn't that a wonderful feeling? And I suspect around the room you have a number of people in mind of people that were younger than you or junior to you that you helped. And one of the other great things about work is we experience community doing good together. Uh, I read once that it's estimated that each of us gets about three great teams in our lifetime. I think I've been blessed with four. But you can probably think about two or three And when you went to that work group, that team, it was such a joy to be with them. They were your friends. You went to their baptisms and the funerals and the weddings, and it was much more, these were much more than work people. Amen? You see what I mean? So so that is, I wish I could end the talk here, because, because work in what I've just described is wonderful. It's creative, and it's community. But unfortunately, the talk doesn't end here. And now we're going to move to the dark side of work. You can all groan collectively. Um, Regrettably, Adam and Eve messed up. And brokenness enters Eden, this perfect world. And by the way, work predates the fall. That's very important. Work predates the fall. And, And because of brokenness, they have rubs with each other. One son kills the other. I mean, it's really awful. Uh, The environment goes haywire, a lot of things, and work is impacted as well. So we see it in Genesis 3, and this is what God says. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Okay, this is very different from the first two chapters, isn't it? I mean, pain, thorn, sweat. And it gets worse in Ecclesiastes. Um, Work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What do people get for all the toil and anxious driving with which they labor under the sun? All of their days, their work is grief and pain. And then the kicker at the end, even at night their minds do not rest. So you can see how work has moved from number one category, those of you raise your hands, all the way to number three. It's gone from this wonder to being a curse. So how does the dark side manifest itself in our lives and the work that we do? Well, work can be frustrating. It can be unfulfilling, boring, anxiety-producing. Anybody anxious here about work? You're sitting here thinking about work? Don't raise your Okay, okay. I shouldn't have that. And sometimes work is just too hard. I think of the number of times in my career when I've just said, Lord, this is too hard. I'm bearing too much of a burden. It's just too hard. And how, one of the, how this expresses itself in a collective sense, remember I told you about that wonderful team you were part of and how it was just, well, communities become unhealthy and work environments become difficult. And I have a picture up here of uh, Steve Carell from The Office. And, and for those of, you, those of you who don't watch the show, he is a doofus, okay? There's no other word than to call him doofus. He offends and he annoys. The tragedy of the show is that the employees are bored they're frustrated, they're underutilized. The comedy of it is we all can relate to this. And um, if you work in an environment where your boss or your bosses suck the energy out of you and basically you work at half the level you could work, I'm sorry. 
Uh, it is far too common, and, and that's part of the fall, um, the, sort of this ineptitude. But there's something worse than an inept boss like Mike Scott, Michael Scott, um, and that is a toxic boss. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but my guess is many of you have experienced the toxic boss. Uh, the toxic boss is insecure, volcanic, unpredictable, hyper-controlling. Is someone coming to mind? I'm sorry to do this. I'm, we're not, we have group therapy sessions when this is done. And the model in the Old Testament for the toxic boss is King Saul. Remember when, when David is working for him and King Saul actually starts throwing things at him. Now, I've never had anything thrown at me, but I did... One of the questions you might ask is, why aren't you a lawyer? You studied to be a lawyer. Well, let me tell you about the three legal jobs I had. Um, the first one, the partners, one was disbarred, one was an alcoholic. The second job, the firm had split right before I got there, and it split right after. The tensions among the senior leaders were really high. And the third legal office I worked in, the lead lawyer was, was disclosed as a pedophile and shot and killed himself. So I'm in my 20s. That's my introduction to the professional work life. Um, Proverbs has a lot to say about toxic work environments. Let's look at Proverbs 29. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, I know that's a political statement, but it certainly applies to bosses as well, whether inept or toxic. And then the second, in Proverbs 17, it is safer to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to confront a fool caught in foolishness. If you have a foolish boss, heaven help you if you get squished between that person. Better to be with a mama bear who's protecting her cubs um, but you know what? It's not just work uh, bosses who make it difficult for us. Work is full of sinners, all the individuals who work, and, and we contribute to that. So I'm going to have a litany here of things that you may have experienced at work. Again, this is the dark side. This is the hard part of the talk. Power grabs, sexism, pettiness, ageism, gossip, cliques, bullying. Want me to go on? All right, I'm going to go on. Uh, unjust compensation, racism, Lack of due process, micromanagement. Doesn't that describe the worst side of work? So I want you to recall, painfully, the worst work environment you ever worked in. Did you handle it well as you reflect back on it? Did it crush you? Uh, Did you get physically sick? I have seen people get ulcers and worse from a bad work environment. But the big question is, what lessons did you learn that you applied in your life to to navigate further on. And now I want you to think about your current job, your current work. And we need to ask the Lord to help us to be salt and light where we are. You know what salt does? It prevents rot. And think of that in the work environment. We We are God's agents, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, to be salt in our work. We are also to be light. And that's not only positive, wonderful light. Light also exposes the darkness. So if we're to be salt and light, Lord, help us to be that in our workplaces. Lord, help us to balance speaking, being loving people, but also truth-speaking people. I fear sometimes as a church we, we, we tip towards being all, always loving people, and, and I'm going to come back to this later on. And I also think there are people in this room who, frankly, probably you need to think about when you're leaving the job or the work you're in now. If it's toxic and if it's killing you, it's not life-giving. Some people are trapped in their work economically. I get that. But if you have options... Um, and by the way, let me just interject here. I'm not a pastor here. I'm just, I'm just like you. But I'm available. Um, if, if I've touched any nerves and any of you want to talk, not just today but in the future, um, I'm happy to have the conversation because I know I'm touching nerves because when I wrote this, it certainly touched my nerves. 
Another dark side of work is when achievement becomes an idol. And this is not blaming external, the bad boss or the bad work environment. This is us. This is me. When our identity is to make a name for ourselves at work, to distinguish ourselves, to prove that we're special. And it's kind of a self-glorification. Think of the people at the Tower of the Babylon. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the Enneagram. Uh, There are nine types. Type three is the danger here. I'm a type three. We, We are ambitious, and we like to have people clap when we do well. We like to be acknowledged. So for people like me, my identity sometimes is too much wrapped around the success and the accolades I receive. And in the process, I sacrifice far too much. Workaholism kicks in. There's all sorts of bad habits that kick in when work becomes an idol. And really, it's more about identity than work, but work becomes a vehicle. It's a temptation. So Catherine Alsdorf writes, achievement is the alcohol of our time. The best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives by becoming achievement addicts. Oh, put a knife in me. I mean, that is such a painful... We become, and I, am, I think for achievement addicts, if, if, if you identify that, you go, oh my goodness, Lord, have mercy. Help, let not work become a temptation and a pit for me. So why do some of us embellish reports? Why do we exaggerate things? Why do we take credit for something which we only partially contributed to? Why do we want to win at any cost? Why do we cut eth- ethical corners? Why are we workaholics? It's because we've made work an idol, achievement, success an idol. So I think the first step to recovery in this was with any addict is to admit that we are achievement addicts. Um, and then secondly, I think we spit in the face of this idol when we take Sabbaths, when we take all our vacation days. Um, when, I was, when I was at InterVarsity, I had a rule with my team, no emails on Sunday. That changed everybody because then they weren't all hunching around worried. Now, some of you who aren't bosses, you don't have this privilege, and you're kind of the victim of, of no Sabbath rules at your companies. But if you're a supervisor and you can quietly implement a no email, no work-related email on Sunday, now, if it's an emergency, my cell phone is on, but don't, let's not do this uh, on, on Sundays. That's a great gift. So... I think we need to ask the Lord to find a healthier balance in our lives and to set appropriate boundaries. Amen? Any workaholics out there? All right. So third, third and final point is how can work be redeemed? So we started in category one. We moved to category three. How do we just bump that up? And by the way, one of the, I'm going to speak to millennials for a moment. One of the problems of millennials, millennials have category one expectations and they experience category two or three reality. And I want to tell you that if you're expecting category one at work, you're, kind of, you're not reading Genesis. So, so you need to lower your sense of what work can provide for you. Um, I have, we have two millennials, uh, kids. Um, so let me, talk, let me give you three ways, brief ways, of how work can be redeemed. The first is by exercising our creativity. Remember I talked about the Genesis mandate that we are to expand creation? I'm going to give you two words. One starts with an E, and one starts with an I. The E word is entrepreneurial. Um, That is starting something new. I bet in this room we have people who have patents in their names, and I bet in this room we have people with copyrighted works. And I just want to say that is... I want to affirm you. I don't think I've ever been told uh, from a pulpit that if you're you're, you're you're an inventor or a writer or creator, that you are right in the main flow of God's heart. You are. Bless you. And... 
I think if you develop software, if you're a writer, if you create art. Uh, I was thinking about one of my former students named Mike, and at 23, he and a buddy started an online retail company, and it exploded. I mean, it was wonderful, not bad, it really grew. And so I wondered what happened to Mike as I was preparing this talk. So I went online, he lives in Oregon, and he started two other companies, and I think he's done very well. He's a serial entrepreneur. God has given him this, I think it's a spiritual gift. I really do. So if you're an entrepreneur, God bless you, feel affirmed this morning. But for the 95% of us who aren't entrepreneurs, we are the I word, which is intrapreneurial. And intrapreneurial, is a, it's a fictitious word somebody made up, it's rather clever. But, but that is, and I'm an entrepreneur, that is we expand what already exists. We innovate with the existing material we're given. So if you're in HR and you work with benefits and you're able to give people better medical benefits for a lower cost, or if you're able to enhance their retirement, bless you. You are an entrepreneur, you're in God's stream. If, if you're an event planner and you don't just do the same way every time but you're constantly innovating... That's where the fun of work comes, but it also comes, you're, you're flowing with what God has for you. Project management. Each project is different, but sometimes people get in a rut. So my encouragement to here is be constantly thinking about, how can I do this differently? So when you go back to work, some of you actually work at paid jobs, you go back on Tuesday, and, and others of you with a volunteer, you'll also go back on Tuesday. I think what I, what I want to ask you to do is ask the Lord to see the needs around you. Sometimes we become blind to the needs because it's so routine, it's so pat. Lord, show me the new needs that are around me. And then, Lord, help me to imagine new ways to address them. See how that brings life to work? Um, and, Lord, the other prayer is, Lord, help me to collaborate with others to find new pathways. And how can I do that? And so then routine things are done better. All right, the second way in which work can be redeemed is by serving others. And this is the call beyond our self-interest. This is where the idea of vocation comes in. And again, I, I alluded to this earlier, but to me, what I miss most about having left InterVarsity uh, in Madison, where I was leading it, is I love the, the doing mission together part. To me, that's the real joy of work. David Packard of, fame, of uh, Hewlett Packard fame said the following, you look around the business world and you see people who are interested in money and in nothing else. But the real reason for our existence, Hewlett-Packard or any organization, is that we provide something which is unique that makes a contribution. That is what gets us up in the morning. I mean, the paycheck is essential. We have to have it. But what gets us up is the sense of meaning. Um, Jeff Van Duzer, in, in a book, um, base, says, tells the story of a woman who's a clerk. She works at a grocery store. She's been there 15 years same store. And somewhere along the line, she makes a promise to herself, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for every person who comes through my line. So she gets their names. She has a list at home. She's writing down, and she has all these prayer requests about nieces and nephews and, and, and crises in these people's lives. And a funny thing began to happen at the store is to say if four lines were open, her line would have 20 people backed up, and the other three lines would be like express lines, but they weren't. And, and the management, what's happened here? Why are people willing to wait 15 minutes in line to see this woman? And when she died, her funeral, a number of the customers came. I love this story. Um, and they had an open mic, and they told of how she had loved them, how she had pastored them. They used the word pastored. And, and, and a woman stood up and said, you know, I, I know this, the deceased really well. And several years ago, she made the following commitment. She said, I'm going to claim these six feet 
around my register for Jesus. And I'm going to incarnate his ministry right here. Isn't that a great story? I mean, I, you know, and so she made something out of a job that is routine. It's not terribly creative, but she made a ministry out of it. Martin Luther once said, we are the fingers of God. We are the fingers of God. So how do we find meaning in our work? Partly through serving others and by having a mission that God blesses. So we need to ask the Lord to help us find meaning in the organization we're working for. We need to ask the Lord to help us see that our smaller roles are part of something much bigger, the whole. And I like the idea, it's not original with me, of praying daily for each teammate. I don't know if you do that, but whoever's on your team in whatever work environment you have, I really think you should pray for them by name. That's another thing I'd like you to take out of this, this, this talk. Um, and because of those friendships, then you'll have an opportunity to share your faith naturally, not in a forced way, because they trust you and they love you. All right, we're on the home stretch. The third way in which work can be redeemed is by being courageous. And I think, as Christians, we are nice people. We like to be liked but there are times when we need to be non-nice and courageous in the work environment. Think of the Old Testament prophets who confronted. Think of Nathan vis-a-vis David. Uh, in, in the New Testament, Jesus goes through the temple uh, out there and he tips over the tables and he has a rope. I mean, Jesus called people vipers in whitewashed tombs. I'm not advising you to do that. Uh, I don't think vipers would go over really well. But what happens at work when you refuse to cut an ethical corner? What happens at work when you refuse to green light something that might be unsafe? That's cowardly when we don't step up as salt and light and say it is. So there are times, hopefully not frequently, when we need to confront, we need to challenge, and we need to call out. And there is a price to pay when we do that. We need to develop spines, church. We need to develop spines, and we need to be, if we're going to be, again, salt to prevent rot in the workplace, we have to stand up and we have to speak. I think of Sharon Watkins of Enron fame. Some of you may not remember Enron, but Enron was a Houston energy company. And she was an accountant, a VP, reporting to the chief financial officer who was as crooked as a dog's hind leg. I mean, this guy was, he he, he came up with all sorts of things. And when she realized what the, the CFO was doing, she wrote a memo to the president. And she said, this is an elaborate hoax. we have a crooked company. And for the next year, she watched, she was vested, she had $90 per share stock go down from 90 down to basically zero. She didn't sell any of them. She stayed with the company. Uh, She became the person of the year on Time Magazine for what she did in terms of both inside the company and outside. Uh, What I didn't know about her was she's a Christian. And that whole time, she's consulting her pastor. She's part of a small group. God is working in her life. So it's too bad there wasn't a Sharon Watson at Volkswagen when they, when they were coming up with this emissions scam. It's too bad, and I hope I don't step on any toes here, that when Boeing was developing the 737 MAX, there wasn't somebody who said, slow down, slow down. I know it's not popular, but please, please. What about the training component? What about... So, what, so sometimes we have to be courageous and not just nice. We have to be nice gentleness, back to the fruits of the Spirit. We do have to be gentle, but sometimes we have to stand in the gap. So, Lord... Help us to discern the situation that we're in. Some of you, this may be a very present. And, and the discernment is knowing when to remain, when to act and when not to act. Sometimes being passive or silent is compliance, and it's, 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 it's not a good thing. 
Um, we need to be courageous to act wisely. And hopefully, if we've built up trust in those relationships, then good things will happen. Martin Luther King Jr. has a great quote. He says, evil only succeeds when good people do nothing. So at your workplace, and I'm sure I'm, I'm stepping on some toes here, I'm, I'm putting my finger in on you a little bit here. If there's something that you need to be courageous about and step up and do it wisely, do it carefully, do it, you know, but, but don't be passive. Don't let it pass you by. All right, concluding, done. Work is a mixed bag. And actually work is really a category two. So those of you who are in two, you're probably right about. And those of you in category one, enjoy the ride. It won't last forever. <laughs> um, those of you in category three, I pray that you can move up. Um, you know, God created work as something wonderful. It's energizing. It's community building. It's for the common good. But it's corroded by sin, just like everything else in this world. It's frustrating, disappointing. And again, some of us even fall into the, trip, the trap of a false god. Work is, re- is redeemed when we exercise our creativity, when we love our neighbors. That includes our teammates, our customers, and even competitors. Work is redeemed when we set appropriate boundaries, such as the Sabbath, And work is redeemed when on occasion we have to courageously confront those around us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you created work and that you want us to imitate you. Help us to be extenders of your goodness and grace at our work and help us to have courage and wisdom as we move forward and particularly as people go back to work on Tuesday. In your name, Lord, may we honor you. Amen. Thank you, Alec. Today we have the opportunity to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's unique as we speak about work, because the Lord's Supper, we celebrate it as it's a symbol and almost a summation of the Lord's work, of the Lord's work.